be spending our time together this morning in the book of James, chapter number 1. We'll be walking down verses 19 to verse 27, so if you'd like to follow along, I encourage you to do that. James, chapter 1, verses 19 down to verse 27. From the time I was in about the fourth grade until I was in grade 12, I had a unique opportunity of having every single one of my classmates stay together. The same ones that were together, those of us in class when we were in grade 4, we stayed together in grade 5, grade 6, grade 7, all the way through to grade 12. And we were a very competitive group of students. Now before you get amazed by this and think, wow, how did you, there were only six of us. We were in a very small school. Uh, There were six of us that were together in grade 4 and we stayed together. But the point is that we were very competitive amongst ourselves. We wanted to have who's got the highest grades Uh, We were very competitive in English, we were very competitive in science, and uh, when it came to math, we were very competitive in math. In fact, I have a lot of memories of math class as I look back, say grade five or somewhere around there, I remember as the teacher would stand and give these oral quizzes, and it's who can answer the question the fastest. I don't know if you did that in your class. It's 5 times 2 minus 1 plus 3 divided by 7, and I don't even know what the answer is now. I'm just making up numbers. And I remember sitting there, and as hard as I tried, I could never be the first one, and it killed me. I wanted to be the top of the class, but when it came to those oral, I just couldn't keep up. The, the teacher would get to the end of the long string of numbers, and she would say equals, and I would, I'd be like three numbers behind. <laughs> And inevitably, there was somebody in our class, whenever she would say equals, Mark always shot his hand up. He was, I don't know, he must have had a calculator brain or something. That kid is boom, 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 boom. And I'm sitting over on the side, what did she say? I wanted to be, I wanted to beat Mark. It was just, now when it came to having it on paper though, oh man, I could see it on paper. I didn't have to wait for her to say it, and then it processed through my oral facilities, through to my brain cranium, and spit it out through my mouth. That's just too much work. But when it was on paper, I could see it. And man, I could go fast on paper. And if I couldn't beat him in the oral quiz, I could beat him on the paper quiz. And that was my goal. Every time we had a paper quiz, I'm talking about grade four, grade five, grade six, grade seven. I'm doing my best. I'm going to beat him every time. And, and, and there was like a, a mark of distinction if you could be the first one to put your pencil down. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody else was that way? I'm just curious. You just, teacher hands out the quiz and you're... I'm going to be the fastest. And you know what? So many times, I would get done so fast. Guys, i got to tell you, I loved math, okay? I loved math. In fact, I loved math so much that when I went off to university, I did not major in math, but I took advanced geometry classes in university just for the fun of it, okay? Like, that's sick in the head, all right? I, I, I loved math. But... Here we are at grade five, and I'm racing through just so that I can be the first one to put my pencil down. Now listen, I have yet, and I've seen a lot of CVs in my adult days. I've seen a lot of CVs, but I've yet to see anybody write down 
first one to put his pencil down in grade five. I've not seen that on CV. Now look, you get, you get ducks at Gordon Secondary. Uh, you put that on your CV, okay? But you don't, nobody writes down first one to put his pencil down in grade five. That is, it doesn't make it. But it meant so much to me when I was a grade five student. I've got to be the first one. And you know what the problem was? Oh, so often I would get done first, but I had made some assumptions as I went through that quiz or I went through that test. And all because I was making assumptions, I got some of the answers wrong because I didn't slow down and look at the work. Now, the opposite of that was when I'm in uni. I had a Russian professor. It was, it was one thing to learn from him. It was a whole other thing to listen to him and have to understand what he was saying. Russian professor. And I remember sitting in those exams, and I came to the final exam. I mentioned this to someone the other day. Come to the final exam in that class. And I want to say there were maybe 10 questions on the final exam. And when he handed those out at the beginning of the, uh, at the ex- beginning of exam period, he said, I guarantee, I guarantee no one will finish this exam. <laughs> I just sat there and I thought to myself, well, what's the point of having 10 questions if you're not going to finish all 10? But I remember bringing extra three, four sheets of A4 paper to that exam because I knew that I'm going to take up a whole sheet of paper or maybe two sheets of paper to try to figure out just one question. And there was no speeding through it because you didn't want to assume anything. When you get to the end of that, maybe you didn't answer all ten questions, but you got seven of them right. And one of the things that I learned as I went further in studies and math was a point that I think really will drive home in today's passage. Being fast is not always being right. Being fast is not always being right. And before we jump into today's passage, I'll just bring us up to speed, a quick review on the book of James. James is assuming, as he writes this epistle, we see it as five chapters. He wrote it as a letter. James is assuming that his readers are already believers. We know that because he uses the phrase, my brethren, 11 times. He says, my beloved brethren. He says that three times. He's speaking to these Jewish people who have been scattered abroad. You saw that in verse number 1, the tribes that have been scattered abroad. He was their pastor before that Acts chapter 8 persecution arose in the church. Tens of thousands of believers that have been scattered out. And he's making a great big point with his book. His point is, don't assume that you're a believer. There's a way that believers should be living And he gives us, throughout this epistle, he gives us ten different tests that you can look at your life and say, okay, if I'm doing this, then there's a really good chance that the gospel has transformed my life. And as we look from one test to the next, the point of the passage is not adjust your life so that you'll then be right with God, but no, look at it, examine it, and we've said this already, as if it were a mirror, look at it and say, have I had this change show up in my life? Because if you haven't, there's a really good chance you need to step back. Have a look at the grace of God and see if God really has saved your soul. Or are you just assuming as you come through? Last week we saw the first question, and the first question last week, or the first test, is do you quit in the middle of temptation? When trials and temptation come up in your life, do you just quit, just give up? Or do you stand fast? And in today's section, verse 19 down to verse 27, 
The overarching question again would be, do you just assume that you are saved? Do you just assume it? Maybe you would assume it because you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe there's a mom and dad that went to church and you've gone to church all your life and you just assume, well, I'm a believer because I grew up in a Christian home. Or maybe you had an emotional experience when you heard someone share their story. And maybe that stirred your heart and you say now, yeah, I think I'm a believer now because I had... And you look back on that moment and you say, I had that experience and I know that maybe I'm a believer now. And he's going to go, wait, don't just assume it. Or maybe you've just been a good moral person. You don't kill people. You don't steal You don't do terrible things. You don't, for the most part, break the Ten Commandments. You're a good moral person, and so you can just assume. And James is asking, are you just assuming that you're a believer? Maybe you prayed a prayer, and maybe you asked Jesus into your heart. Friend, this morning I want you to examine yourself. Don't just assume, because the fastest is not always right. Be careful. Check yourself. James's idea today... Check yourself. I would break verses 19 to 27 into two major portions. One is the commands that Christians will be following, and the other one is the evidence that you truly are a Christian. So let's walk through those first ones, the commands. I see these in verses 19 to 22, the commands for the Christians. Let me read verse 19 to 22 with you. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. I see six commands here. The first three of them kind of come rapid fire together. In verse 19, those first three are be swift to hear, be slow to speak, be slow to wrath. They all come together in verse 19. My beloved brethren, believers that are scattered, there's a way you should be living, and this is a command that comes from God. Be swift, fast to listen. Be slow to speak. Be slow to wrath. Before I go further, I might just ask, examine yourself, friend. Is this a marked characteristic of your life? Or might you say, actually, this is the opposite of how I live. And by the way, the opposite of these commands is the way the natural man lives. The natural man, having not been transformed by the gospel, is not going to be swift to hear. He's not going to be slow to speak. He's not going to be slow to wrath. In fact, the natural man doesn't want to hear what you have to say, wants you to know what he has to say, and he will get angry if you don't listen. Well, these are commands for Christians. You and I as believers, if the gospel has transformed your life, this would be a marked characteristic of you. Slow down. An amazing thing happens when you slow down and you listen. And I don't mean you listen long enough for the other person to stop talking. So many of us do that. We listen to the other one just so that they can get through what they have to say. And while they're talking, we're formulating what it is that we're going to say next. 
No, wait, slow down, listen, pay attention to what they have to say. Be swift to hear. Slow to speak, slow to wrath. And I ask this question, why? Why would you be slow to wrath? You realize that as the natural man stops his ears and opens his mouth, he speeds himself along the pathway to wrath. Have you ever done that? I know I have. I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you this morning. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. But if I close my ears and don't want to hear what somebody else has to put in, and I'm quick to speak, you know what I end up doing? Quickly, as I see the frustration in my, my own eyes, I see the frustration because they're not listening to me. Then I begin to try to speak more, and now my anger begins to build because they're not listening. And don't you understand? I have to tell you what you... And I begin, well, why would it be so important for a believer to be slow to wrath? Well, verse 20 tells us. Verse 20, for the wrath, your wrath does not produce the righteousness of God. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. As you become angry, you are not exhibiting the righteousness of God in your life, which should be happening as a result of God transforming you. The righteousness of God should be coming out in your life. It should be an evidence in your life. People should be looking at you, believer, and saying that person has been changed. There's a difference about that person. And if you aren't exhibiting that in your life, there's a problem. But instead, you're exhibiting wrath. It's the opposite of the righteousness of God. Now let me pause here and make something clear for us. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Righteous anger, by the way, does not flow out of these three things. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That does not bring about righteous anger. Righteous anger is a good thing. In fact, as I look through the Scriptures, I see God, the Scriptures state God getting angry 119 times if I counted correctly. That's 119 times that it says, and God was angry, or God's wrath was on display. We would be very familiar with Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven upon unrighteousness of man. So there is such a thing as righteous anger. That's God gets angry. God does not sin. So for God to have wrath is a righteous thing. So what differentiates between righteous anger and unrighteous anger? Because we're not to have unrighteous anger. It's very possible to be God-like and have righteous anger. So what differentiates them? And I think that the easiest way to answer that question is with this question. What are you getting angry about? done counseling with a lot of people in our society, and I think anger is one of those top sins within our society that people battle with continually. Righteous anger, what is God getting upset about? The fact that He created you so that you would glorify Him, which is right, and then, instead of glorifying Him, you, man, Turn to sin, and that sin will destroy you and take you far from what is best, namely glorifying Him. 
So his anger is upon the fact that you're in sin. That's him looking out for your best interest. So when God's angry over sin, he's angry over something that is destroying your life. But yet unrighteous anger, which is what we get exhibited most of the time, unrighteous anger is me getting angry over what affects me. So here, what would righteous anger look like if it's coming from me? If I were to see someone abusing a child or a man beating a woman on the side of the road, if I see that, I am going to be inclined as a believer and a follower of Christ, I'm going to be inclined to step in and with righteous anger put a stop to that. Some of you might be thinking, huh? And family problem. Don't go there. Don't go there. I have no problem and have done it many times. Stop my car in traffic. Get out of my car and tell them to cut it out. It's amazing what happens. Men, I'm just going to speak to us. For, this isn't my notes, okay? I'm just going to speak to us openly. Men, it would be amazing what would happen in our society if we stood up. It would be amazing. I could tell you story after story, and Becky's been witness to this many times, where I've seen on the side of the road a man hitting a woman, belting her up, and I've stopped the vehicle right there in the road. I don't care if I'm stopping traffic, and I get out of the car, and I go over there and put my face in front of his. Poro, you like Python, ma'am? Try Python one blood of one kind size, I'll save you. Hit me. Don't hit her. I'm stepping in right now amazing all of a sudden all the people who were standing on the side doing nothing 30 seconds ago suddenly they all get encouraged to stand up and go that's right you don't hit her gentlemen it just took one to stand up can i encourage us step up you see a child being abused you step into that situation that is righteous anger it has nothing to do with me. When I see a child being abused or I see a woman being abused on the side of the road, that has nothing to do with me. I'm not inserting myself into the situation so anybody will talk well about, oh, look, this pastor came and did it. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with that person. She's an image bearer of God. That child's an image bearer of God. So I'm going to step in and insert myself into this situation. Let's get things under control for that person. You realize that's what God's doing. When His wrath comes down upon our sin, it's for our good. It's not for Him. Now, He has every right as the creator and sustainer of life to do anything for His own name. That's perfectly fine. But you and I have no right to do anything for our own name, especially in the name of wrath. So there is such a thing as righteous anger. But let me warn you, lest you walk out and say, well, pastor said we can do it as long as we're in righteous anger. Be careful. It's oh so easy to slip from righteous to unrighteous. So be very careful anytime you allow righteous anger to swell up. Be careful. There's a fine line. You'll slip quickly into unrighteous. We never have a right to say things like, well, I'm just an angry person. Em no sabe. Em make him osemna. Now me You don't have a right to say that. Friend, as a transformed child of God, 
slow to wrath, slow to speak, quick to hear. The fourth one in this list is in verse number 21. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Those are some words that we haven't used this week. Um, filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Uh, I, I'll rephrase them. Put aside wickedness and evil intentions. Uh, the word filthiness, another word would be dirtiness or a wicked lifestyle. And I don't have to dwell there long for you to know exactly what type of wicked lifestyle people can live. And as believers were called to move away from that, put aside that kind of life. And then the second part of that is also superfluity of naughtiness. Uh, literally, an abundance of malice or an intent to harm. That's the idea. Superfluity of naughtiness is an intention to harm someone. So you are looking for ways to be able to get back at someone. I'm going to cause harm to someone. And since I've already mentioned our societal problems, can I just state this here? God ordains within government law and order. And I know that we have problems there. Let us, as God's people, be marked as people who will pray that God will restore order in law and order. However, no believer, no intention of harm. So what does that mean? It means that when someone pickpockets in the market... We don't come as a crowd and belt that person to a pulp. That's a mob mentality. That's the way of the thinking of the natural man. The one who's been transformed by the gospel has pity on that person's soul. I'm not saying let him go. But I am saying he needs to be handled by law and order. Hold him. Turn him over to law and order. Let law and order handle it. But you and I as civilians within society, do not have the right to break his hands and his legs. That right is not in our hands. Church, you say, Pastor, you're really hitting society hard today. Brothers and sisters, are our, li are our lives lining up according to the way that we should be? What we need to be doing is we need to be evaluating against the Word of God. Am I transformed by the Gospel? I certainly hope you're not taking delight in the fact of mob justice. There's no place for it. It ought not be. Fifthly, the latter part, portion of verse 21, I'll start in the beginning of verse 21 so you can follow. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. So receive the word with meekness. Receive it. Receive the Word. If you're a believer, you're going to be receiving the Word. And as you receive the Word, you're going to see places in your life where you're going to wait, I'm not lined up according to Scripture. I need to realign myself. And I'm going to receive, and I love the words that it uses, the engrafted Word. That's a picture of a fruit tree. And some of you maybe have done this. I've never done it. I want to try it sometime. Grafting in, and the idea is here's a branch that will bear good fruit. 
And here's a rootstock that didn't bear so good. And I'm going to bring that branch and put it over here. And I'm going to put these two together. And now this tree will generate good fruit. And the idea is here, you believer have been engrafted with the Word. The Word comes into your life and it changes the type of fruit that you produce. And it also says to receive it with meekness, gentleness, humility. Obeying the Word. And there is no place, believers hear me well, and especially young preachers that are coming up behind us, there's no place for the Word of God to ever be used as a lead pipe to hit somebody over the head with. Oh no, let the Word of God do its effectual work in their heart. Let the Word of God do its work and let them receive it with meekness. These are marks that should be in our lives, friends. And then lastly in this list, in verse 22, he says, but be ye doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Be a doer of the Word, not just a hearer of the Word. A doer of the Word. You realize that you can have two people in the very same church service sing the very same songs, hear the very same verses proclaimed, give in the same offering, and those two people go out from the church and one live like the devil and live like the world and the other one's life completely changed. Why? Because one is a doer of the word and the other is a hearer only. Be a doer of the word. Let the word sink down into you. And James is asking us, are you just assuming that you're okay? You're just assuming you're saved. Maybe it was because of the way you grew up, or maybe your parents were Christians, or maybe you've been a moral person, or maybe you prayed a prayer, or maybe it's because you come to church, you think you're okay. It's very possible to just come and be a hearer, but not a doer. And so there are some evidences that the gospel is changing you, and I see these in verses 23 to verse 27. Evidence that the gospel is changing you. I'll read verse 23 to 25. We'll see our first one. Verse 22. Sorry, verse 23. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. Again, there are hearers and then there are doers. Hearers are the ones that hear it but don't do anything about it. Doers are the ones that hear it and then, his words here, continue to do it. Before we dive far into this idea, I want to remind you that the mirrors of ancient Israel were very different from our mirrors of today. I remember my early, even early weeks at Koriranga. I saw James this morning. James is around here somewhere. James, you have to help me. There he is. James and I, Koriranga, early days. This is almost 20 years ago. I remember moving into the bush six weeks without Becky and the kids. And moved into the bush and took just what we could take with us. And I got there and realized I had not taken a mirror. And so for six weeks, I lived without a mirror. 
the only way that I could, I did have a little digital camera. Remember those pre, pre-mobile phone days was digital cameras? If you had a digital camera, man, you were something. I had a digital camera, the face of it, you slide it across and then the, the lens came out. It was, it was so cool. The only way I could see myself was if I turned that around. We didn't even have a word selfie back then. But I could take a picture of myself and then turn it back around and look at the picture. Oh, wow, looks like my beard got longer. Six weeks. That was my first time to grow a beard out. I had never done that before. Uh, Becky said she liked it, so I praise the Lord for that. Uh, <laughs> and so... Those days, no mirror. And and even I think as my years through there, and I remember working with students there, my Bible school students, guys that were training to be pastors, some of them, the best mirror they had was just a broken piece of a mirror. And and I got to say that even a broken piece of a mirror in a remote village is heaps better than the ancient mirrors that they had in James's day. The best mirror that they had at that time was if you could get a piece of glass And remember, their glass at that time was not sheets of glass like we have today. If you've ever seen old glass that's got like bubbles in it and swirls in it, that's the kind of glass they had. Or if they were rich, they could get a piece of silver, like a silver platter. And you could polish it up. And if you've ever looked at a silver platter that's been polished, it makes a terrible mirror. But you can just imagine as the rich man in that day would have somebody polish up his silver mirror and then he would hold that mirror up. And you can just imagine as he tries to see himself. So when James says the, hear, uh, the, the guy that is just a hearer, he's like the one who beholds himself in a glass and continues on about his life as if nothing happened. He's not talking about you just happened to walk past the bathroom, see your reflection and realize some hair was out of place. That's not what he's talking about. He says, beholding himself. The word beholding literally means to study. So you get this picture of a rich man with a mirror that's made out of a plate of silver, polished up, and he's beholding himself. Because you've got to hold it just right with just the right light. And you're looking and, mm, is that my eye or is it my nose? Oh, okay, okay, that's, that's my eye. And oh, wow, news grassy go long straight. My, oh, I have lots of ear hair too, wow. Oh, wow, my lettuce from yesterday, it's still there. And you can just imagine as they look, and then and here's the guy, he studies his face within the mirror, and then he sets down the mirror and decides to go on about his life. Lettuce in his teeth, long ear hairs and all. This is, he goes, that doesn't even make sense. But the guy that will come to the Word and hear the Word and study the Word and say, wow, that's the way that I'm supposed to live. But then he goes on about his life as if there's nothing to change. He goes, that's as about senseless. There should be a change, guys. You come to the Word and you observe it fully and let the Word do its work and reflect. You go, no, I'm not slow to speak. No, I'm not slow to wrath. There needs to be a change in my heart. I need to go back to the Holy Spirit. I need Him to do a work in my life. I need to examine my faith. Am I really truly a believer? The opposite is in verse 25. Verse 25 has the opposite. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, 
He being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. The guy that looks at the word and lets it do its effectual changing in his heart, that guy has a change that's coming up and he's going to be blessed in his life. And I wonder if you honestly evaluate yourself, friend. Honestly evaluate. You see, that's one of the evidences that the gospel is changing you. That you take honest evaluations of your soul. Do you take honest evaluations or not? I hope you do. I wonder if you take the time to look at yourself and see where you are spiritually. Or do you just endure church? You come and sit in the service and it's the one box of the week that you tick off for God. And you come, sit, I'll go through the service, and if he's long, he'll go to 27 minutes past 10. And if he's short, we get to go home at 10.20. Do you just sit and endure it, or do you sit and listen to the Word and let the Word soak into your heart? And do you on Monday and Tuesday spend time in the Word and let the Word behold yourself in a glass? And I need to make some changes. Do you honestly evaluate? I did counseling with a guy once. It went on for weeks. This guy had some real deep issues, and I worked through them with him. And i got to say, whenever I would see him at church, he was really sharp. And we'd meet for counseling, and he was really sharp, dressed well, good shoes, nice trousers. He always had his shirt tucked in just right. He had a watch. It was a good-looking watch. And I don't know why I noticed this, but halfway through one of our early counseling sessions, I noticed that his watch, the time was wrong. I don't know why I noticed that. I don't know, maybe it said in counseling you're supposed to be paying attention to the other person. I paid attention, and I went, his watch is wrong. I didn't say anything about it. We were there probably a good 45 minutes and an hour counseling, got to the end, and I realized, hang on a second, not only is that watch set to the wrong time, that watch is dead. Those hands aren't moving at all. That's odd. I didn't say anything. A week later, we met, and I took note, pay attention, hey, what do you know? Those hands are still dead, and they're still set to the same time they were last week. You know what that told me? Dude's wearing a watch because he wants everybody to think he's fancy. That watch doesn't do anything. And it made me wonder, what else is this guy putting on? He's projecting an image and the watch is just an outward indication that there's something that isn't matching up with what's on the outside. And I wonder how many of us come to the Word like a mirror, not so that we can look at the mirror and see what changes need to be made, but we look at the mirror because we know other people are watching us and we want them to see that we look in the mirror. Did you get what I said? I wonder if you come to look in the mirror just so others will see you looking in the mirror. But a hearer only looks at the mirror. A doer looks at the mirror and does something about it. And he will be blessed in his deeds, it says there at the end of verse 25. Evidence that the gospel is changing you. You take honest evaluations of yourself. Secondly, you are intentionally slow to speak. You see that in verse 26. You are intentionally slow to speak. This is verse 26. 
If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. I will not stay on this topic for long, because in three weeks, James will come back to it, and he'll address it at length. So I won't stay here long. He's making a point here. If you seem to be religious, but you don't know how to control your tongue, he used the word bridle. The bridle is what you put in a horse's mouth. You don't bridle your tongue. You don't control your tongue. Did you hear the words that he used at the end of verse 26? This man's religion is vain, useless, worthless. In other words, it's possible to have on the outside the appearance that everything is well. And maybe you even for yourself assume that you've got it all together. But the evidence from your tongue is showing differently. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, Jesus made this statement. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. So if you want to have a good evaluation of what's going on in your heart, have a look and see what it is that's coming out of your mouth. I wonder if James might call your religion vain. In fact, did you see the words that were used at the end of verse 26? This man's religion is worthless. You're wasting your time. Be careful what you say, church. Speaking quickly and speaking angrily is evidence that there has not been a change of the gospel in your life. And as I think about people that come to church and then leave, one of the top reasons that people leave the church body is because of things that were said about them or to them. Oh, how easy it is for our tongue. He'll say it in chapter 3. Such a little member to cause such a great big fire. If I could just give you a practical tip before we move on. This is from my own personal experience. Within a social setting, it's very easy to say something that will not calm things, but will instead ignite things. And in today's modern society, we've moved from social settings that are us sitting around campfires to us sitting around mobile devices. And I might say that the equivalent, uh, today's equivalent of sitting around the fire is something like a WhatsApp chat group or maybe social media. Oh, how easy it is to drop a bomb and run. Slow to speak. And when someone speaks and it's offensive, slow to wrath. Just a practical tip here, and I've come to find this to be very helpful. I've actually learned it from Brother Eric. When someone says something that you find offensive, it might do well to just set it aside. Leave it. Come back to it tomorrow and see if it's still as, as offensive. And if it is, Apply the Matthew 18 principle. If your brother offends you, go to him alone. 
For if you bring it back in that WhatsApp group, all you did was ignite more fire into that fire. Perhaps it would be best step back. Thirdly, this comes from verse 27. Evidence that the gospel has changed you. Thirdly, you seek to help those who are helpless. See verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. The first part of that verse is quite often quoted, and it's usually quoted outside of its context. However, I think it's a good indication do you want evidence that the gospel's doing its changing work in your life? One of those evidences is, are you reaching out to help those who are helpless? There's a religion comparison going on here between verse 26 and verse 27. Verse 26, it was the man who can't control his tongue, but he seems to be religious. Did you see that at the beginning of verse 26? He seems to be religious. Then verse 27, do you want to know what true religion is? True religion is not the way that you dress up. It's not even the vocabulary that you use so that other people will think that you spend time in the mirror. True religion is going to help people who are helpless. The word visit here, verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless. The word visit doesn't mean you just go and pop in and see them. The word visit means to go to show an intention of help. And then also notice that it's not just to go find the fatherless and the widows, but to do it, visit them in their affliction. So there's a moment, and you and I would know this from experience, there's a moment when a widow is at her most afflicted point. You know when that moment is, right? It's a moment when her husband just died. When he just died, now she's looking at, what's the future look like? I don't know. Example, she's young. She's 25, 30 years old, and now all of a sudden she finds herself without a husband. Now she's looking at the future. I don't know. I've got these little kids, and I don't know what to do with them. How am I going to raise them? He's been the breadwinner. I don't know. what. Now I'm going to be in the poorhouse and I don't know how to take care of these children. I'm going to be dependent on others now. True religion and undefiled. Who cares what kind of necktie you put on? Who cares what kind of suit jacket you wore to church? Who cares what kind of mirror and you've got your good King James Bible to look into? Who cares about all of your appearance of religion? True religion? You're going to go and you're going to sit with that widow. Now follow me. When you go and sit with that widow, you can't say anything that will be of help. Hear me well, church. It doesn't matter what you say. What are you going to say to her? Well, sister, for the wages of sin is death. Steer away from that verse. The fact that you came and sat with her is what she needs. She needs somebody to come and sit with her in her grief 
Sure, give the family some money. Sure, bring some food. They're going to have all kinds of house cry issues that they've got to face. And may we be marked as people who come to help instead of take. And when you come, sit with her. Just find her in her affliction. Come and sit with her. Because you know, back in verse 27, that guy that wanted to appear religious, he wanted everybody to hear what he had to say. And now you want real religion? Real religion is you don't matter what you have to say. You come and sit here and just be an encouragement and help them in the midst of their affliction. That's true religion. True religion is an evidence that God's made a change in your life. It's no longer what can I tell you, but what can I do to help you? You see, that's an evidence of a change in your life. I mentioned that this verse is often only halfway quoted because the second portion of the verse is as important. You notice that it says their pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So in other words, there's two parts of pure religion. One part is you're helping the helpless and the other part is you are keeping yourself unspotted from the world. You remember what the world looks like, right? Filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Intention to harm. Living in wickedness. And he says, pure religion is more about your heart and what's going on in your heart and you're keeping yourself away from that. You see, the more we are being conformed into the image of God's Son, Romans 8, 29, the more we're being conformed into the image of His Son, the more we should look like Him. And you remember what He looked like, right? The Lamb of God, spotless, untarnished by the world. And you and I, having been in the world, now saved from that, now being called to be separated from the world. Oh yes, we live within the world, but we should not be acting like the world. We should be striving to be unspotted. So I wonder if you act like the world this morning. You've just been assuming that you're a believer. You act like the world. You need to examine your faith. Just like those math problems I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. You need to take the time and go back and look over it. Make sure, am I really in the faith? Because if I'm just assuming, there's a really good chance I'm going to mess this up. James has given us opportunities to examine our faith. You can rush through and you can assume that you've got things right and you can wear the right clothes like other religious people. You can speak up and tell people how they should live. You can even listen to the word be proclaimed. But if all you're doing is hearing and you're not doing, James would say, you're not in the faith. There are dangerous indicators in our lives and the gospel should have changed your life. If it hasn't, could I beg of you this morning? Don't assume that you're a believer. I'm going to ask us to bow our heads this morning. Normally, I would invite you to come to the altar, but this morning I'm not going to invite you to come. Instead, I'm going to have a moment of quiet introspection because I want you to take the time this morning to examine yourself. Do I have these characteristics?
Is this evidence in my life? If you find yourself hitting five out of six, maybe you just need to adjust. But if you're missing them, oh friend, perhaps you're not in the faith. So I want you to take a moment, examine yourself, whether you be in the faith. Heavenly Father, how easy it is for us to assume that we're right. Assume that we're right with you. Who we are, where we came from, how we act. Lord, salvation is found in none of these. Salvation is found in trusting the Lord Jesus who went to the cross and took our sin so that we would not have to take the wrath of God. That and that alone is where our salvation is found. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that we would examine ourselves. Am I putting my trust in the Lord Jesus? Or am I just assuming that I'm okay? Lord, I pray that we would not be simply hearers of the word, but that we would be doers also. I certainly don't want my worship to be in vain. For it's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.